Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 129 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Ira Sharfin joining us, and Ira is the CEO over at Continental Office. He's got a great story with a lot of great advice, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you'll learn a lot. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today, our guest is Mr. Ira Sharfin, and Ira is the CEO at Continental Office, a company dedicated to improving the quality of life at the, workspla- or the workplace. And at Continental Office, they work with companies to design a workspace from the ground up to fit in with the company culture and objectives. And Ira has been with Continental for 13 years now, uh, but before that, he was a partner at IBM, as well as PwC Consulting, and he graduated from Michigan. We've all got our flaws, right? But uh, with a degree in industrial engineering, and we're very excited to have him here with us today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Ira. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today, and it sounds like Josh has a question right off the bat. As Tom will plug one of those fake laughs for him after that (laughs) terrible joke. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now I got it. I feel like I'm actually outnumbered here with Josh being a Michigan man nowadays, but generally where we like to start, Ira, now that we're already off track, is we kind of like to kick it back, talk a little bit about where you went to school, Michigan, of course, and and some of the roles you had early on in your career, uh, and anything else maybe from, you know, the early days of your life, childhood, growing up, that that you'd want to talk about, so feel free to take it away. Sure. No, thanks so much again for having me here. So uh, I grew up in Columbus actually born in New York, but grew up here. And, um, you know, from an early age, I, I had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, my dad was a general contractor, mostly commercial, and I used to drive around with him on the weekends. And when I turned 13, he took me to a job site and said, you're going to work here. And I thought it was just for the day, and I didn't realize it was going to be for the summer. So 
he probably violated some child labor laws, but you know, I started doing construction at age 13 and did it until I went off to college and even a couple years during the summers. And you know, one of the things um, in living in Columbus, we you know, we didn't have Uber and Lyft and all these things. You know, back in the day, we used pay phones and we we rode around on something called a bicycle. And uh, so I'd I'd bike all over with my friends and I decided one day I'd. I think I had a couple bucks, and I bought candy bars. I think were a dime, so I went to the local five and dime store and bought a bunch of candy bars. And I realized that people would pay twenty-five, thirty cents in the neighborhood. So I started buying more and more candy bars, and I just sell them on the street. You know, I guess people were lazy or or they didn't know the price of things. So I thought that was a good gig, and and got involved with cutting lawns and shoveling driveways and painting numbers on the curbs when people still maybe there's some neighborhoods where they still have you know the, mm-hmm. the the white background with the stencils and you know I just loved it you know I, I loved making money and and you know providing customer service and interacting with people so you know I think you know looking back you know after I got into the, the you know the job world I didn't realize it as I was growing up that you know I was kind of planting those seeds a little bit and uh, so you know as you mentioned I went to University of Michigan did not apply to any schools in Ohio. I wanted to get away. I grew up going to a lot of OSU football games, you know, occasionally sneaking into an OSU football game, and uh, you know, quickly became a Wolverine. Um, I do root for Ohio State every game but one. And you know, I always wanted to be an architect because my dad was a contractor, and then I, I got to Michigan and I realized I couldn't draw. <laughs> so engineering was the likely path there. And you know, it high school was easy for me. And when I got to college, I realized that everybody was at least as smart, and so I think that was the first good life lesson for me, and and part of what I you know I like to talk about with young people, entrepreneurs, is that you know a lot of what your you experience, um, especially your failures, really help you become successful later on. And so, at the time, it it really sucked because I wasn't getting great grades and kind of afraid that maybe I, I wouldn't last till my second year. And, you know, I, I kicked in gear and figured out that, um, you know, I really needed to study. And so it was a great experience for me. I, you know, I met a lot of great people. I had great professors. But because I dug a hole for myself, when I graduated from Michigan, a lot of the recruiters at the time, this is 1988, were automotive suppliers and automakers. And I didn't love the automotive field. Plus, I didn't have the grades that a lot of the others had, so I, I went out and found my own job, and it was with an industrial manufacturer in Chicago, where a lot of my friends were going. Probably boring you, but if you guys start snoring, then I'll know to, to no, switch it's gears. Great, it's great detail, yeah. And so um, it's funny. I started, uh, you know, I started Michigan in mechanical mechanical engineering, switched to industrial engineering, graduated industrial engineering, and then my first job, what an idiot I was, I, I took a job in mechanical engineering. <laughs> so I was a CAD operator and designing seals for pumps and compressors, and you know that job lasted all of five months. I had interned with a company um, in Detroit between my last two years in school called Coopers and Libram, which became PricewaterhouseCoopers after a merger with, with Pricewaterhouse. And I ended up getting hired in their Chicago office. And they were, that's right when the whole business process reengineering um, was the big craze and everybody was into business process redesign. And so I kind of jumped on that bandwagon and the timing was right. I, I was fortunate to work with a lot of cool companies and literally travel the world. And that kind of got me on a, a path I thought was going to be my transitional job. You know, another lesson is whatever you think your plan is, things will change. And so I thought I'll work in consulting for a few years, I'll get my MBA, then I'll get my real job. Well, I, you know, I stayed you know, 16, 17 years in consulting, so it, uh, it seemed to work out for me. It's not a typical career path in consulting. Normally, yeah, it is the two or three year, and then it kind of uh, burns people out a little bit, and the grind is tough. So you, you went to Chicago for the engineering job, right? And then you, did. So that lasted five months. Did you, was it kind of surprising you when that PwC role opened up just because of the fact that it's probably got to be a difficult role to obtain? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, I think it was really, I kind of caught the, I caught it just right because it was a few years before all the big MBA recruitment started. So, you know, I look back and I think, you know, heck, I probably wouldn't even gotten hired back then, you know, or, or they would have hired me as a research consultant and then kicked me out as a few years, you know, a few years later, which, you know, when I became a partner later on, I kind of fought for people that were undergrads and wanted to stay because it's not, to me, it's kind of what's in you and what you know, not necessarily what, you know, what your degree says. Um, but yeah, it was, I think it was a little unique and, you know, looking back, I didn't realize how fortunate I was, you know, to be surrounded, have the ability to work with great, uh, mentors, um, partners that were at PwC and then, you know, clients as well. And, you know, I learned from the great ones and I learned from people that I didn't think were great leaders as well. You know, you learn what you don't want to do. And when you're in your twenties, you're, you're kind of looking for different traits and emulating habits. And, you know, I used to say, I'm, you know, I'm going to be like him or I'm going to be like her when I, when I'm older, you know, when I'm 30. And, uh, so I just, you know, I'd jot some things down. I'd remember things and I'd kind of crafted what I, what I viewed to be like the, the perfect profile of a leader, not knowing where I was going to end up in my career. But, um, yeah, I kind of meandered through it and found my way into, you know, just a lot of cool, um, you know, cool engagements and spent a lot of time in um, South America and Europe and South Africa, Australia. And, you know, it's, I didn't realize it at the time, but, I, you know, I was getting, I was kind of getting an on, on the job MBA. Did you pick any particular focus as your career started to unravel that you found that you really, uh, you really fit best with? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, given my background was industrial engineering, they, they put me in, at that time, there were still time and motion studies, and so I, I got to work on, you know, the plant floors with, you know, different union shops, and that was a big, big education. You try to make change, and you've got, you know, a union shop steward, you know, telling you that, no, we're not, we're not going to do this, and by the way, you know, we have everybody, you know, thousand people are a member of the union, so... Um, I did a lot of um, manufacturing process work. I got into supply chain. I did all sorts of things from helping to optimize distribution networks. And then I, I really had a, a desire to do more things that were strategic. And so I kind of gravitated and shifted over to the strategy consulting unit. And I don't know, I, I had a, an interest in mergers and acquisitions and they put me on some jobs and I guess I didn't screw it up too bad and so I I really went on this path of helping companies integrate businesses that they purchased and it was nice because I almost entirely represented the buy side it's kind of happy when you're buy, buying a company the one that gets sold you know those those people aren't as happy so um, you know I was fortunate to to be able to build different teams and make partner at a, at a relatively young age, which again, I, you know, I blame them for making me partner, but you know, it's, I think, you know, you create some of your own luck and I think part of it's, I learned, you know, it's not how long you stay at the office, it's how smart you are when you're at the office. And so I always felt I could work harder than anybody. And you know, you get, you guys are much more accomplished athletes than I, you know, my, my athletic career ended in high school. You, you know, you guys were, or, you know, athletes in college, but, you know, I always felt I could outwork someone, but then I realized that, you know, if you can, if you have the, if you have the ability to outwork people, but you can also work smarter, then you're, you know, then you really got something. And so it's, you know, again, kind of emulating and seeing people that were more experienced than me, how they operated. And I just, I just bug the crap out of people. I'd stay late and ask questions and kind of like what you guys are doing, you know, it's, I was just curious and, you know, how did you do this? How, how did you, how did you make partner? What did you do? You know, what kind of steps did you take? And so I, I did, you know, I just made the decision that because that was the highest role, I was either going to leave or I was going to become a, a partner in the, you know, in the consulting group and yeah, I ended up doing it. So it was, I could check the box. So as those 17 years unravel and uh, you still have probably this entrepreneurial spirit deep down, but yet you're getting exposed to a large breadth of projects, but you're working inside of a, a massive um, corporate entity, does the edge start to come back towards the end of that? Like how does, once you hit partner and, and things start to 
um, come to an end looking back on them at PwC. What does that look like for you, like mentally? And So I, I love being in a partnership because even though, you know, we had tens of thousands of employees, you know, the partners really were able to make decisions. We, you know, we voted on a lot of the big changes. Um, there was a lot of camaraderie. And so I would work not just with consulting partners. I'd work with the audit and tax guys. I'd work with the you know, the business advisory, and, you know, some of those people today are still good friends of mine. And then when we merged in 1998, we merged. I was on the Coopers and Library side. I made partner there, and then we merged with um, Price Waterhouse, and I thought, oh, what's this going to be like? And it was awesome. You know, now we had a bigger team, and they brought different things to the table and had a whole other group of friends. And and then the whole Enron hit and uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. And so it was very hard for a very large consulting group that was part of an audit and tax company to work on, on both sides. And so, you know, we were bleeding a lot of consulting revenue and just made the decision that we had to split off. And a lot of people don't realize that at the time PwC, we were, we were in talks with um, Hewlett Packard, with HP, to sell ourselves to them. And everybody was counting their money. and it was going to be an all stock deal which i didn't i didn't love that idea not that i was senior enough and that kind of fell apart and then ibm popped up so this is probably the middle of 02 and and they decided that you know we had an element they didn't have um, we had more global consultants they were very strong on the technology side but we we brought process and strategy and a lot of client relationships so uh it was actually the the last big move that Lou Gerstner made, who was famous for not breaking IBM up in the 80s and the pieces like everybody thought and kept it together. And he did that deal, handed it off to Sam Paul Masano, who became CEO. And we took 35,000 global consultants and partners and joined IBM. And that was, it was awesome and scary. And, you know, I learned a lot, but um, I only lasted three years because. I kind of miss being part of a partnership, and I did have that entrepreneurial spirit, and I, you know, I decided to leave, which was pretty risky because you know I was making a good living. I had a great job. I was in charge of a global group, and you know, you know, it's fun being part of a gigantic company. But, but I did learn a lot, even though I only stayed three years. I have friends that it's scary now. They've been, they've been with IBM seven, you know, sixteen. 17 years and it's you know I, I exited you know had I not left when I did I might I might still be there you know it's tough to leave the longer you're the longer you're at a company like that what was the toughest part of that transition for you so from from switching from PwC to IBM and and taking all those people from PwC and integrating them with that IBM process what was the toughest part for you personally so me personally so I did have um, an opportunity to lead part of the integration mm -hmm. and they asked me again I don't know why they asked me to lead the change management and communications part of the integration which was really cool because I got to spend time with Ginny Rometty who at the time was running the global business services group the consulting group and now is chairman and CEO of IBM and I'll tell you what she's she, she's the real deal and uh, my first my first meeting with her and this is kind of good and bad. I, I remember when I said, Ms. Rometty, because I was afraid of her. And she said, no, you can call me Ginny. And her name's Virginia, but she went by Ginny. And people said, don't call her Virginia. You know, you get fired or something. So I said, okay, Ginny. I said, what are we going to call this new consulting group? And she looked at me, and I'll, this is 16 years ago, and she said, Ira, we're going to call it IBM. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, shut the hell up. Like, you know. Just shut up! Like, of course it's you know it's IBM, but what I learned, what I learned in that exchange is you know just the power of the brand. You know, IBM. You know to this day, and you know I have I have a fondness for IBM. You know when you're watching a TV show or golf and you see that you know the that blue banner come up, you know it's IBM, and you know IBM Watson and the whole you know it's you know there's a lot of history there, and you know in terms of what they've done with computing and and now services. So. You know, I got to travel around with her throughout um, the U.S. and do different integration events, and she she was awesome. I mean, it's you know she wouldn't remember me now, but 
you know, I really understood what IBM was about. And, you know, it is kind of run a little bit like the military in terms of, you know, we'd have cadence calls and, you know, month ends and quarterly closes. So the, the part I didn't like about it is just that, you know, it's like hurry up and get the deal done. And there was a risk aversion and, you know, all these things kind of added up to me realizing I could stay there and be happy. But, you know, it's probably better to take a risk and opportunity came up to, to not just join Continental Office, but to buy the company. And, you know, I felt I just couldn't pass it up. You know, it's, you, you come to these forks in the road and defining moments. And, you know, there's always other options that, opportunities that might pop up. But for me, even though it meant, you know, probably more risk at the time than, than reward, I just, I just knew it was the right thing to do. And I wanted to get off the road. I had moved back to Columbus with my family and wanted to develop relationships here and you know it was just you know I was just really fortunate to get to a company that had already been here for you know 65 plus years. Did you ever think when you were in college or when you left for college that you were going to want to move back to Columbus someday? No, no it's funny you know <laughs> when I left for college 670 didn't exist and you know I would joke with people when I moved back I'd like you know I didn't know there was a short north I didn't know that Clintonville was an area. I mean, I, you know, I was kind of in my own bubble and, you know, I was, I lived on the east side and I grew up in Berwick, which was like kind of James Road and Livingston. And then right before high school, my, my parents, my dad built a house in Blacklick, which I'd never heard of Blacklick before. And it, so, you know, for me, the city, it was like a brand new city. And even now I fast forward another, I moved back in 04, um, you know, 14 years, and it's, you know, Columbus is pretty hip and cool. You know, there's a lot of cities like Austin or Nashville that are, my wife's from Vancouver, I put Vancouver in that category, that are that are not trying to be cool, they're just cool, right? Mm -hmm. And Columbus, I think, was trying to figure itself out, maybe trying to be cool. I, I think Colum now Columbus, it's just cool, you know, it's mm -hmm. whether it's microbreweries or all the startups and you know, VC money, it's, it's a great place to be. So long-winded answer, no, I never thought I'd come back. I thought I'd stay in Chicago or, I don't know, end up out west somewhere. But this is, this is a good place to be. City's happy to have you back. So when you went to those crossroads, though, and you were looking at, I'm interested, maybe a couple, uh, a couple benchmarks now. So at, at this point, you're, what year is it and what age are you? Or you don't have to say, so, you can just talk about years. Yeah, I'm pretty, so I'm 53 now. I always work backwards. So I was 39 when I left consulting, and I made partner when I was 32. You know, it sounds like I'm bragging, but, I mean, it's, the, it's a fact. I mean, there is only one set of facts, by the way, <laughs> in life. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I was 32 when I made partner, and so I, I had, you know, another seven-year run. But, you know, it was kind of like that. I'm going to be 40. It's either I'm going to re-up. And, uh, you know, at the time, part of the deal with um, IBM purchasing us, there were options that vested, and you had to stay five years to get the full boat, and then, you know, you're always leaving something on the table, and some of my friends are like, you know, dude, you're crazy, you know, you got two years left, it's only been three years, and it's like, you know what, sometimes you got to give up something to go for something else, and it's just, you know, I, I did the, I did, you know, I did the old sheet of paper, line down the middle, a plus sign on the left side, a minus, and the pluses just outweighed the minuses. And it, you know, it wasn't about, although I've, I've grown to love furniture and flooring and branding and all the other things we do. We do a lot of construction work, and, but it was more about the opportunity and, you know, a great brand in Columbus, being able to build teams, which I always love doing. I still do. You know, I love hiring people and developing people and, you know, seeing people be successful and promoting them, and but when you're when you're consulting, for the most part, you're it's very hard to establish relationships where you live because, you know, the odds are you're going to be traveling and working in different cities, and I mean, you know, there were years where I spent more nights in New York than I did Chicago, even though I lived in Chicago, and where I spent more nights, you know, out of the country, and you know, I I just wanted to have some roots, not just where I live, but also in the community. And, um, 
and from a business standpoint, be able to develop those business relationships and and have long-term relationships versus doing a you know a really great engagement and then moving on. Um, nothing you know nothing wrong with that. It was I, I would repeat my you know my work history again, but I, I just needed a change and um, yeah, I think now that I'm more kind of like the old guy, you know. Um, it's uh, it's something I tell younger people, which is you know it's not where you start, it's where you finish. And you know, I never thought I would move back to Columbus, own a you know a furniture flooring, you know, commercial furnishings company. I you know I thought I would do something different, but you know I, I certainly wouldn't change it. So what did the state the state of the business look like um, when you were evaluating it? What kind of enticed you? Made you say like I know you mentioned the brand, a well-established brand. Obviously that was probably. Um, pretty intriguing was there anything else and then what did the process look like of acquiring it and then going from there yeah so I you know I knew I knew the uh, the owners of Continental Office and you know they were looking for a, a transition plan and you know part of what we do on the furniture side we're a big Herman Miller dealer we're one of their larger dealers we're based in Columbus but we've got a Pittsburgh office a Toledo office we've got a lot of regional and national clients and so one of the things I did when I was considering it I went up to Herman you know I went to West Michigan to meet the CEO and the executive team there think you know if I'm going to be partnered with these guys I want to know what they're about you know I always love the products and so that went great and I really liked them and they had a great energy and, and and you know felt really strongly about Continental as a partner and and I met um, a lot of the folks at Continental you know some are no longer with us some just you know they didn't fit in with the future direction or they you know wanted to opt out um, I did tell everybody that this is gonna be a lot of work that uh, you know the company was you know again great reputation was in pretty good shape but not performing like it should you know no different than a sports team you know when you know when you look at a team that's you know losing more games than they should you know a lot of errors and you know mistakes and it's like we got to really get down to basics we got to put the right process in place and structure and hire more people and put new technology in place and so I knew it was going to be kind of like my I look at it as my last consulting engagement because I'm you know this this is you know you know hopefully my my last job um, they'll kick me out at some point or I'll, I'll kick myself out but you know we're we're you know, on the path to greatness, we're not there yet, but we get, you know, I think we get better every day, every month, every year, but the first five, six years, you know, there's a lot of change. I mean, if you fast forward today, we're, we're probably twice the size, although there was no goal to double revenue. We, you know, I opened an office in Indianapolis, which in hindsight was one of the dumbest things I did, and I, you know, apologized to everybody, but there were a lot of learnings there because now we know what we're capable of and you know I think it prevented us from opening maybe in other cities doesn't mean we you know we're not opportunistic we wouldn't expand but that just didn't work out Indy's a great city still love it but you know it wasn't in the cards um, but we're much stronger today from a customer service standpoint um, the company wasn't real balanced it was very sales oriented and the operations suffered and so I kind of liken it to um, you know, a football team where you have to have great offense and a great defense, and when they're not balanced, you typically can't win a championship. And I'm still of the mind, you know, offense, which would be, you know, our sales and design and marketing, and a lot of the upfront customer-facing people um, that are, you know, more the relationship side, you know, if they don't bring in the business and make a sale, you know, we're, we're out of business anyways. But if the, the operation side doesn't deliver and and just provide awesome service you know these clients are gonna, aren't going to come back to us anyway so it's really you know we have 255 or so people but everybody plays an important role you know just like on a football team you know that kicker might just be the kicker mm -hmm. but if he misses that field goal you know right. in overtime or you know with time running out and you lose the game it's kind of important so um, everybody, everybody plays an important role, and you know I think of it that way—that everybody has something to to add to the mix, and and every 
every one of our associates helps create the culture that we have today, which is more team-oriented and a, a real passion for helping our clients. And yes, we're a for-profit company, but you know it shouldn't be about how much money can we make all the time. It's hey, let's do this, and it'll it'll come back to us. Let, let's let's go above and beyond. Let's help people. Let's not you know we shouldn't be on the clock. You know, good things will happen if you take care of clients and companies. Absolutely, and I guess there's a lot to unpack there. I think that you know an important. Sorry, piece. I tend to ramble, so that's, I love know, it. I, it's my, great uh, to get a lot out of someone. Distracted it's, personality. It's always it's always great to have somebody who talks you know more because it then we don't have to kind of dig it out. We have a lot to talk about. So, but I you know with within all that you know customer service always comes to mind for me because. One of our teammates in college, his name is Johnny Julius. His dad, John, is is very big on customer service, huge on it. And it's supremely important. And he always talks about giving people a five-star treatment, right? And everybody, yeah. you know, something they're not always used to. Um, but with all those process improvements, I mean, were most of those on the customer success side for your team? Or the customer, We call it customer success yeah. here at FMX, but a customer service side. I would say mostly. You know, there was some infrastructure back office stuff that we'd clean up you know there was low-hanging fruit there were you know i mean there were some people at the company that you know no one really knew knew what they did you know and and they were nice people but we just didn't need it was either redundant or you know what they were doing just didn't add value you know based on the future direction that we were going to head and, and it wasn't just about me that i wanted to change and i mean i do love change i like disruption i like to be on the edge, so to speak. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like how, how I snow ski. You know, I always look like I'm going to fall, but I usually don't. But that's just kind of how I am. Maybe it's because I'm clumsy. But a lot of it was how do we improve our delivery to our clients? How do we work better as a team? We had to change a lot of roles. We had to put new roles in place. In some cases, we had processes that we looked at and just said, we, we can't fix this thing. Like, we got to let's just throw it out. We got to start over. Clean sheet. You know how how should we do X, whatever that is. You know, maybe it was um, um, you know um, service around you know repairs or something to do with our transportation. But we made so many changes, and again, you know, the only thing I would apologize is that um, you know if I didn't communicate or keep people in the loop. But you know, I, I never would apologize at the rate or pace because we had to move quickly you know we had clients at risk we didn't want them to go to the competition and you know sometimes that you know you got to move quick and if you make a few mistakes you correct as you go but I didn't want to spend an extra two years getting it a hundred percent you know if we got it 90 plus it wasn't jeopardizing the business sometimes that's okay and you kind of kind of round it out as you go you know, I, didn't, I don't like overanalyzing. It's funny because we just talked to uh, Greg Bixler, who is an engineer, and he's over at Ohio State, but he was talking about how the engineers, it's, you know, they say to ship the product, you got to shoot the engineer uh, <laughs> because they're never quite satisfied with the, the level of the product. But you yourself an engineer, you're pushing the pace. And I, do you think that stems back to your entrepreneurial attitude? I, I think so. I think the entrepreneurial side of me kind of, you know, beat down the engineering side. You know, I, I still, at that time, and I don't do it as much today, but, you know, I, I could dig into the details of data. I mean, I still like data. I like to analyze things. I like to look for trends. But, yeah, looking back, I, I probably early in my career, I would, you know, spend extra time and overanalyze and make sure that, you know, I really understood the process and that we map things out. And But I realized that, you know, you know, time is money, and if you spend too much time, you know, bad things can happen. So it wasn't like we were, you know, willy-nilly and just kind of shooting from the hip, but, you know, if I was in a room of six or eight people and the majority felt it was the right thing to do, let's let's go. I mean, I, I, I don't think I had to override the team that much because when you start asking the right questions, they kind of get to the answer, yeah, you know what, we always wondered about that and thought if we did it this way, it, it could make more sense. And, you know, our customer service is rated, you know, at least Herman Miller has some ratings and some tools on the furniture side. We were bottom quartile in their 
in their dealer network. And it's like, that's, that's bad. And so now we're, you know, we're not only top quartile, we're probably in the top, you know, five to 10%. And we take pride in that. And, you know, sometimes we get real busy and, you know, we're running real hot and you make some mistakes, but at least now we're, we catch them and we oftentimes don't make the same mistake. And we'll communicate to the client and instead of trying to put a patch and hope they don't notice, we'll say, by the way, we screwed up or this isn't going to make it there by next Monday, but here's what we're going to do about it. And you know, most of the time you get a thank you or clients appreciate that versus trying to fool them. I mean, that, that never ends well. You know, it's, you know, I learned that early when I was a kid. You know, you break something and you patch it together and, you know, you're going to be at dinner and that, you know, that vase, or something's going to fall apart and then, you know, you're going to, you're going to be in worse trouble. So, um, you know, I tend to be just, I think, you know, more blunt and I try to be more transparent with not just our team, but with clients and say, hey, here's what happened or even here's what we're capable of doing. You know, we, you know, we can't commit to do this because we don't, we're not confident we can deliver it. And so, um, I don't know, I find that openness is something that we maybe didn't have 14 years ago. And so, um, yeah, I think we're, I think it's maybe Continental Office 2.0 or 3.0, but I mean, we're, we're going to celebrate our 80th anniversary next year. So, you know, there's still some things we're fine tuning and tweaking and, you know, we're always looking for businesses that we can acquire that kind of fit our, you know, our strategic direction and fit with our, our culture and, you know, bring something that we don't have today. And the notorious stigma of uh, life or project life of a consultant is that, you know, you get in, you analyze the problems, you tell them what's wrong, but then you, you don't stick around to execute on it. You yeah, know? You, you, have to, you head out of town, you fly home, right? Yeah, yeah. or like sometimes maybe now they have execution teams, so it might be a little bit different. But for you, I mean, it was analyze, stick around, execute for the rest of my foreseeable career. Um, are there still areas that you really feel like, hey, I mean, obviously you constantly iterate and you constantly got to get better. Are there certain areas that you still don't know, like, hey, I don't know if we got this right still, or do you feel comfortable with where the company is and now it's just, you know, continue to uh, project ourselves in the direction that we're headed? You know, I think it's mostly that we're, we're moving in the right direction, but I think there's a few things, you know, that you mention it, that I'm always asking my executive team or the other leaders in the company, hey, you know, why are we doing it this way? Or have we, you know, have we thought about doing it differently? Or, hey, we talked about X. Well, we got busy. Okay, I understand. You know, it's my fault. You know, I didn't circle back. Um, you know, I think, I think leaders, at least, again, it's not what I created. It's what I've seen from other great leaders that I had, you know, chance to work with is, you know, they would take the blame. And, you know, there's people in town that, you know, that I admire like that too, that would say, hey, you know, that's my bad. Um, because if you're the person at the top, it does all fall on you. And so, yeah, I think there's a handful of things that, that we look at, you know, a silly example might be, you know, like, you know, we lease all our trucks today and we've talked about, hey, maybe it would make more sense, you know, if we, you know, bought our trucks because, you know, we tend to, you know, maintain them and, you know, maybe financially it would make more sense and we wouldn't have to, you know, bring in new trucks every so often and then we have to take them out and have them painted our colors and so forth. So that's one little example that, you know, we talk about it, but sometimes it goes on the back burner and, you know, we like to circle back and, you know, that's one that we're actively looking at today. You know, there's other things related to, you know, some of our physical space. We recently moved just a year ago to a downtown studio in Columbus, which I originally thought we'd end up getting 20 to 30,000 square feet downtown, and we ended up getting 4,000. And it's great. It's awesome. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it's cozy, and it's, um, you know, it's hip and cool. But that led us to then building out, you know, more office space, which is awesome, you know, is equally awesome. Um, at our freeway drive location, which you know has a very loud, obnoxiously lit <laughs> sign at night and painted like our trucks, but people can work at both locations. But again, you know, until I started talking to people and figure out what we really needed, um, you know, I might have made this mistake of getting too big of a space downtown. But then that led us to moving to a smaller location for our Pittsburgh studio, where we also have then 
another warehouse location with with space. So it's 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 kind of I don't want to say it's trial and error, but sometimes it's talking to enough people to kind of formulate. And sometimes I'll talk to two or three people. Sometimes it's thirty people. And you know I, I try to I don't do it by consensus, but if you get enough general agreement and there's enough data points, you know it's the right thing to do. So. Um, Again, sometimes I'll override the team, but usually whatever they come up with, you know, it's the right thing that we should do. But there's, uh, you know, I know I'm rambling, but there, there's definitely uh, a few things that we still haven't gotten right. And, you know, it's an excuse to say, well, we've been busy because, you know, everybody's, everybody's busy, but we just need to focus. And one of our challenges is just constantly prioritizing because there's not enough time in the day and... I think sometimes, which is a good problem to have, we're guilty of trying to do too much, and we overcommit, and that's where you can drop the ball or make mistakes or, um, again, ask people to do things that takes them off of doing some of their core work, and that's typically when I pump the brakes and apologize and say, you know, let's, let's take, you know, 20-second timeout, step back. I'm asking you to do things that, you know, it's taking you away from your core. Let's, we got to figure out a different path or just not do these things. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned how a lot of the leaders you observed um, took a lot of ownership for, for a lot of the things that they did. I think, just on a side note, completely side note, honestly, is that uh, book Extreme Ownership um, by a couple of Navy SEALs I've read. It's a great one. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, focus kind of around that idea of leaders taking ownership. But um, from there, you know, I think great place to go would be to talk about uh, Hopewell Works. You recently invested in the company, kind of take a step away from Continental Office. Um, maybe before we, we leave, you know, in terms of, of the next five, ten years at, at Continental Office, um, what are your goals for the company? What's your vision? And, and what are your goals personally? That's a great question. So um, the first one in terms of the company, you know, I don't plan to go anywhere, but, you know, we're we're continuing, continuing to evolve as a company. And my biggest push right now, and it does kind of lead into Hopewell a bit, which we'll talk about later, is just where's the future of work? Where's the future of you know, the work environment? And it's, I'm like obsessed with trying to figure this out. And you know, not that other smarter people aren't looking at it as well, but you know, the, the traditional office has already changed. You know, I look around your space and, you know, other companies, you know, things are becoming more open, and and a lot of people will ask me, you know, do we just preach open work environment? And I say absolutely not. I think that's the wrong thing. You need a good mix. You need choice and flexibility, and you have to give people permission to work differently, whether it's at home, whether it's you know at the office, and so forth. And so, you know, I just spend more and more time talking, whether it's with clients or other business leaders, my own team, like where is this whole thing moving and how do we how do we stay ahead of the curve so we can capitalize on it? And that might be some investments we make, it might be different business ventures. Um, but that's really where I, I tend to focus my time is how, how can we in the next five years or so really become an even better resource and partner for existing clients and future clients because it's really not, I don't look at it as you know, it's about the furniture or flooring. It's it's kind of that's a means to an end. It's how to if we can help people solve big problems and help them attract and retain people. You know, we've we've all read the articles about millennials and Gen Z, but it's happening. I mean, it's coming. And you know, I, I've got I've got four kids, four girls, and you know, three of them are you know in that uh, kind of ones. You know, maybe kind of straddling the millennial, more Gen Z, and the, you know, a couple of them are Gen Z and one's still in diapers, but, um, you know, I see it with them. I mean, you know, and it gives me energy too, because, um, I mean, it's not just about younger workers, but, um, you know, people work differently and they have different expectations. And it, unless you embrace that and stay ahead of that curve, you know, we're seeing it in Columbus and all over, companies that are just not attracting the talent like they used to, and it's a big risk. So, you know, it's the softer stuff, and I think that's where 
kind of the strategy consulting background I think comes out a little more where uh, I'm, I'm having more and more discussions with, with companies and leaders about, you know, where does this all go? You know, you know, what's your real estate footprint? How do your people work? And less about, hey, we got a new chair that's awesome. You know, it's ergonomic, and which we do. We have a lot of you know great products, but it's it's about what are you going to do with those products? And so, um, I don't know. That kind of haunts me. Is that, you know, where's this whole thing end? There's maybe a lot. It, maybe of, it doesn't end, but but it's it's still shifting. And there's so many turning variables there, right? I mean, dealing with people alone who have a tendency to find something that works a little bit and then overdo it to the extreme, which, like you said, the open work environment thing. Like I think we found here that um, the millennial trend was that open work environment was key, and now it's not conducive to our goals sometimes in some areas of our company. And then also technology changing, the way that things evolve, like to be able to predict that and all those different moving variables at the same time has got to be an extremely difficult challenge. So I could definitely resonate with, uh, you know, what you were talking about there in terms of your personal challenges. Interested to hear how that transitions into Hopewell works. So you said that was yeah. kind of a, a tangent point. Well, you're right, too. I mean, because, you know, now there's programmable furniture, you know, and height adjustable tables that will will move, you know, at certain times to get you to stand or get you to sit down and, you know, movement's important. And so, yeah, the technology piece is, you know, something we're invested in. So, you know, the Hopewell piece, um, you know, it was a few years ago, and I, 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 I got introduced to, to Brian and Emily, who are the, you know, the co-founders of Hopewell. And, you know, and it, you know, on the surface, it was another co-working, which they seem to pop up every day or every week. And nothing wrong with co-working. I, I, it's great. It serves a need. But as I dug in and learned a little more, um, what they were looking to do is more of a membership model. So there was no dedicated space. It was more about how do you solve isolation and how do you give people that, you know, third place or third space like Starbucks used to be, still is, but maybe not as much. You know, their stores tend to be smaller and people use the drive-through or call ahead. And, and plus there's not a, there's not a lot of um, connections that happen at a Starbucks. You know, you, you'll meet, the person you're meeting with, you'll talk, but you won't necessarily talk to others. And so, so Hopewell, which has really um, been up and running for maybe six months or so, and we're, we're co-located, our studio on 4th and Chestnut, with Hopewell, it's exactly that. Um, you know, as 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 Brian um, Zerker, one of the founders, would say, it's you know, it's like the college, you know, student union, but for adults. You know, so you think about the rec center where you you know, as a kid, where you'd go and play and hang out. It's it's that professional work environment. So you can go there to work. There's there can be education or different happy hours or after hours events. There's, you know, yoga every few, you know, weekends. Um, some people want to use it companies for retreats, so they'll rent space there. So it's different depending on the individual or the company, and it's priced that way. You know, it's priced more like a gym membership, so you don't have to have an exorbitant commitment to rent, you know, workstations or an office because, you know, all of it's um, uh, common space for the most part, although there's touchdowns that you can use if you have private calls or meetings, and it's open to the public. There's a, we have a cafe with a full-time barista. People can walk in off the street and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually, you know, you, you cut off the Wi-Fi at some point. You know, there's ways to control it, but, you know, we want to be more open source, which is, um, you know, which I think is great, and so it's, there's a lot of relationships that are formed. I've met people there, and you know, it's about connecting and growing and learning. And so the plan is to open more locations, and you know, to even take this Hopewell model into companies, whether it's Columbus or other places where they could have a Hopewell on site uh, within their company, and you know, give their people another um, amenity or opportunity to work in a different environment especially for companies that aren't ready to make that full commitment to changing the space. You know, this is a more affordable way to do it. So I don't know where it'll end up, but I'm, I get a lot of energy from, from being involved in it. And, and, you know, Brian and Emily are real, you know, young, smart people. And, you know, maybe I have a, a story or a nugget or two to help them with, but, um, but it's been great. 
and so I, you know, I enjoy it, and you know, it's another way to, another opportunity for us to show our clients because we're co-located of different work settings, and you know, we designed it and furnished it, and did, our branding team did the work there, our flooring team. So, you know, it's maybe self-serving in a way we can show some of the stuff we do, but it's also a way to just learn how people work and. You know, I'm just curious to hear, you know, why, why are you, you know, is natural light important to you? You know, you know, what are some of the other, you know, things that you're looking for? And we've tweaked it. We've made different changes in some of the furnishings. And, I mean, it's all Herman Miller, so it's, it's, it's nice. It's quality. And I don't think there's a shared work environment or a co-working space I've seen that is, you know, furnished as nice as Hopewell. But you guys have to come check it out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to swing by. Yeah. It, it's funny, you know, you mentioned that the change of pace. I think for me personally, like I definitely, I need a change of pace throughout my work day. Like I can't work in the same space without getting a little antsy. Yeah. Right? So so it makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm an old guy and I feel the same, same way. So it's not just, it's not just people that are in their 20s or 30s, you know, everybody right. needs variety. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, Josh though, I think he could work in this, in this room that we're in right now for about, 12 hours straight and not have to move. He's pretty incredible when it comes to uh, his ability to stay in one spot and work consistently. But It's not by choice. It's when you can't afford to waste a minute of your day <laughs> that moving becomes something that's not an option. Josh is just a little more focused than the rest of us. But um, no, I, you know, and, and that's what I tell our own associates at Continental, which is, you know, we now have, you know, we actually have three locations in Columbus, although one is really primarily a warehouse. But, you know, we've got, you know, this freeway drive location off 71, we've got this downtown studio, Hopewell, which is part of it. Work wherever it makes sense. You know, let your team, let your, you know, your manager know where you are, but I want people working different places. And, you know, years ago, you know, when I'd see someone come in at 10 o'clock, I might wonder, you know, is that person a, you know, screw up? Why are they coming in at 10? Now I think they were at a client early in the morning. They were working at home. They were at one of our locations. They were up late working. You know, I, I don't, I don't question because if they get their work done and clients are happy, I, I you know, it's maybe flip to say I don't really care, you know, when and how they work. I mean, I, sometimes I'll do emails at two a.m. You know, it's, but I think you have to leverage people's strengths and you know focus more on the expectations and. The thing I like, you know, today versus years ago is, you know, we treat, you know, employees like they're adults, not like they're kids. And, you know, it's give them the tools and let them do their job instead of trying to micromanage and focus on fixing all their flaws. Let's, you know, let's leverage the things that they're really good at. And so, I don't know, it's just a different perspective for me. So I, I tend to be you know, overly optimistic, but, you know, unless someone proves that they're not getting their job done, I don't, I don't ever worry about where they're working. And people on my team probably do, but I just, I just trust that they're doing what they need to do to take care of each other and clients. And, but that whole variety of choice, it's, it's not going to go away. These big office buildings, Columbus and around the country, they're, some of them are dinosaurs. They're just, they're not compelling. They're, Every floor looks the same, and you know, unless you start changing things around a bit, it's it's going to be a challenge. There'll be a lot of vacancies. Absolutely, Ira, and I think that's probably a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show. Actually, the last question of the show centers around the theme on conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And I'll tell you too much about why we chose the phrase for conquering Columbus. What do you think of when you hear it, and how do you apply it to your life yeah. and career? I love it. I mean, there's some friends of mine where we, you know, call each other and, how you doing? You know, I'm conquering the world, you know, so I, I use that conquering a lot. And it's, it's a good, it's a good word because it shows that you're, you're focused, aggressive, but you're not, you know, you know, you're not necessarily destroying things. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, I love disruption. I, I like to be involved. I like to invest in you know, businesses that are disruptive and unique and different and have a value proposition. And, you know, so, you know, I, I think I think Columbus is a great place to be, not just with the startups, but because, you know, we've got a good groundswell going. You know, there's more OSU grads staying here. I mean, 
you know, I also say things that are not supported by data, but, um, you know, it's, it's an envious place to be and fastest, you know, growing city in Ohio. And so, you know, for our company and for me personally, yeah, I, I want to, I want to feed off of that, you know, disruption and, and change and not change for change sakes, but I, I just don't like status quo. And, you know, sometimes there's more risk in not changing, <laughs> staying the same. So I, I don't, you know, I don't want to just sit still. I want to continue to push the envelope. And I love talking to business leaders in town and, um, some are clients, some are, you know, friends and, you know, other entrepreneurs that are, you know, kind of pushing the limits. And I think those are the, if you look at the successful companies, you know, the Cover My Meds and Root Insurance and Olive and, you know, they didn't get to, you know, where they are by just sitting still and just, you know, steering a ship. You know, they're taking risk and some entrepreneurs are on their second or third gig and a couple didn't work well, but, um, you know. We're not going to bet the farm, but we're going to make some bets with our company. And, you know, I love it when someone on my team comes in and says, hey, crazy idea, but what if we did this? It's like, dude, let's talk. Like, that's cool. I want to talk about crazy stuff that may not go anywhere, but you kind of learn from it. And so I don't know if I answered your question. I think I kind of made it my own question. But, um, you know, I, I personally will, you know, until I stop working, which will probably be never, you know, I want to always look at things that are, you know, how can you conquer whether it's a industry or market segment, and you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be the biggest at all the things we do, but I, I just want us to be the best that we can be, and you know, I'm, I'm going to jot down the book, the book that, that you mentioned, but um, you know, there's a book I read years ago called Small Giants, and it was, you know. Um, a lot of different companies, Anchor Brewing, Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, and, and the whole theme is why companies become great instead of big. And yeah. You can do both, but I just I just want us, the company and our team to be as great as they can be, and just good things happen, I think. I mean, I don't probably like when you guys wrestled. If you're prepared and you do everything, you know, good, th you know, you may not win them all, but good things are gonna happen. Your, your team's gonna win a championship, you're gonna win a, title or whatever it might be and I don't know that I love to me work is fun business is fun life's hard work should be work should be easy and fun if it's the opposite then I think that, then you're doing the wrong thing in life absolutely well Ira that's a great answer to the question and really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and tell your story my pleasure thanks so much for having me conquerors thanks a lot for tuning in that was Iris Sharpen he is the CEO over at Continental Office Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave us a like, share it with your friends, give us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate all your support, and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here, and that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual and more if you want to check out more you can go to gofmx.com conquering columbus is also brought to you in part by the sundown group the sundown group is an ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need including investors mentors capital and talent through business pitch events workshops and classes throughout the state and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org and our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, 
If you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.